When I went to medical school, I was really focused on how can I make sure there's primary care in communities that I grew up in, just knowing how hard it was for us to find doctors. And I thought at that time, gosh, the first thing I have to do is what does good care look like? And so I'm going to become a doctor. You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. On this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Cheryl Pegas, Executive Vice President of Health and Wellness at Walmart. Growing up, Cheryl felt the sting of inequity and discrimination in healthcare firsthand. But those challenges fueled her fire to become a physician and to transform the medical landscape for the better. Today, Cheryl is increasing access to affordable healthcare for millions of Americans, furthering Walmart's mission of delivering good quality for a modest price. Today, Cheryl and I discuss her healthcare story, the aspects of healthcare beyond patient and physician interaction, and how it takes teamwork to achieve patient outcomes. I'm Mark Harrison, and together, we're building a healthier future. Good morning, Cheryl. I am so glad to speak with you. It's always nice to see somebody who I like as well as you do and I respect as much as I respect you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and likewise. Let's just start with some business stuff and we'll dive into a couple of areas that complement it. You run the Walmart health and wellness business. It's 65,000 associates, I think, hundreds, maybe thousands of clinic sites and dental and vision and pharmacies. When you went to medical school, did you ever think you were going to do anything like this? Absolutely not. When I went to medical school, I was really focused on how can I make sure there's primary care in communities that I grew up in, just knowing how hard it was for us to find doctors. And I thought at that time, gosh, the first thing I have to do is what does good care look like? And so I'm going to become a doctor because that's the skill set that will be the most important for me for my career aspirations. It's turned out it is one of the skill sets and probably only makes up about 25% of what getting good healthcare access looks like. I don't even think that I thought of places like Walmart for healthcare. And by the way, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so that may explain lots of things in the way that I looked at it, but absolutely not. In Brooklyn, talk a little bit about these access issues that your family faced. I'm originally from Trinidad, and when I was a little girl, my grandfather got really ill, and we couldn't afford to take him to the hospital. Frankly, even when we could. There were doctors who would say no. And as a kid, I remember cleaning out, you know, a leg also, which today, right, by the time I got to medical school, I recognized probably had a diabetes foot ulcer, but we did family at home care and we all rotated grandchildren, children doing that. And my grandfather ending up passing away And I came to the U.S. to go to school and become a doctor. Like it cemented for me that I wanted to do that. And my mom already worked in the U.S. And I remember just as a young person, my mom needing to go to the doctor 
And we literally would call to make an appointment and it would be months away. And we try to figure out, should she go to the emergency room? And I just kept thinking, this has got to be easier. Not angry about it, but more thinking about something, there's something here that I should do. And for me at that time, I was a kid. It's like, I should go become a doctor. That's what I'm going to do. So give us a little timeline, Cheryl. So you were born in Trinidad, right? That's correct. And then did your grandfather's problems happen when you were still in Trinidad? In Trinidad, I actually lived with my grandparents and my mom was in the U.S. working. As many people will know um, of immigrant families, there's a parent who's sending money back home and I was living with my grandparents and they were raising me. So I was with them and he got ill probably when I was 11, passed away when I was 12 and I would visit my mom summers, Christmases, or when she came back home. And I remember just coming here that summer and just going, yep, I'm not going back to Trinidad. I'm going to become a doctor. And my mom totally freaking out. Just <laughs> wait, what? How are we going to met? What are you talking about? We could, we're barely making ends meet. And really just dedicating myself to something that I knew I wanted to do. But also, I didn't know what else was I going to do. It's like right. this person who cared, raised me, I was there through all of it. I, I like lived through it and I wanted to do something about it. And so pretty strong opinion about becoming a doctor eventually wore my mother down, which is probably another story. And then I did high school. I mean, I was 16 by the time I was a freshman in college, leaving that summer, turning 16. And I just went for it. When I think of Cheryl, I think of somebody who goes for it big time. So Cheryl, what a huge loss you suffered as a youngster. Your brain was really plastic at that point in time, and I'm not surprised it, it changed the trajectory of your life. And congratulations to you for taking something that's really sad and, and turning it into good for now millions and millions of people. Did your grandma, did she come to the U.S. with you or did she stay in Trinidad? She came later. The great thing about my family, and I say this, so really close-knit, supportive family, but taking risks, wanting to try different things. And my grandmother ran a shop. But the great thing about my grandmother is my grandmother lived with us in the U.S. and passed away at the ripe age of 104. Wow. So we've got some great genes. And I do remember later in life, my grandmother having to go to the hospital, getting sick at home, and we cared for her last years at home as well. And I remember being called, I was a cardiology fellow at that point, and being called to the hospital. And my grandmother saying to me, get me out of here. I'm like, okay, I don't want to be in a hospital. And I was like, what's the problem? And literally a direct quote, they won't let me have whiskey in my coffee in the morning. I was like, we're going <laughs> to sign you out. And we did. <laughs> we took her home. It was awesome. And then she could have her whiskey. And then I literally, I remember looking at the staff. I'm like, you don't even have to do it. We'll have a family member come in and pour it in. Like, well, you know, we don't allow this. I'm like, yeah, she's going home. <laughs> she's 104. A really strong person, it sounds like. She sounds amazing. Did you ever face issues around race in terms of health equity and access? Your grandfather had some economic concerns and access concerns, but how about racial inequity as well? 
Absolutely. So part of the reason he didn't get treatment was because of race. So that was an underlying theme there. And I'd say for my parents and for myself, there was no question that was an issue. The first question I remember my mom being asked when she would take me to receive care was, do you have the money to pay for it? It was just a first question each time. And that's, again, stuck with me. I was pretty young and I was like, wow. And I obviously didn't understand the health insurance system, but I knew that it just, what we would think of going to a doctor, being able to pay for it and someone treating you for whatever medical condition you had, maybe listening to what some of the other issues may be today, what we call social determinants, it just never happened. And if we wanted good care, we would actually travel to Manhattan or travel to another neighborhood, not in our neighborhood, because physicians treated people differently depending on their zip code and where they were. I noted that pretty early. It's interesting, Cheryl. I mean, we all have our biases. I think when you're mature, you recognize that you have biases and you try and overcome them because we have agency. We're sentient beings. But in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we did a lot of listening here, as many organizations did around the country and continue to do that listening. And one of the most moving stories that I heard was from one of our Black caregivers, a woman who's a midwife. And she shared that she would always wear her stethoscope around her neck and always wear her white coat no matter where she was so that people wouldn't assume she was an environmental services worker. And because the bias, I think there was no offense meant, but these microaggressions actually do add up and it was wearing for her. And when I asked her how this made her feel, she just said exhausted. That was the word she used. And we've got a lot of work to do. And I'm really glad that you're in the role that you're in because I think you're making difference at scale. So one of the things that I love about your company, about Walmart, is it takes its role really seriously in terms of providing great products for people without a lot of means and treating them really respectfully and making sure that they get really good value for their hard-earned money. Can you talk a little bit about your career trajectory? You've had such a fascinating career and how you ended up working with Doug at at Walmart, who, as you know, I I hold him in very high regard. I consider him to be a friend and somebody who I really admire. I think that feeling is mutual for you and for your wife. There is a belief that clinicians, physicians train to provide the best quality care that they can provide, pharmacists, opticians. People are doing these roles because they want to provide great quality care. And so there is a system in place that should enable that because the training's long and hard. When you're done, everyone who comes through your door or frankly, everyone you go see should be able to get great quality care. The pieces that go around that and putting that in place is what I think Walmart innately already knows. There is this mission component of in the community that you're in, first of all, the people who work at our store come from that community. There are associates. I, by the way, love the fact that Walmart does not use the term employees. They call everyone an associate. I'm an associate. We're an associate of this organization. And we want to make sure that you feel great 
coming to Walmart every day where you work. How do we do that? The first is we have to listen to you about what your needs are. And your needs are, yes, financial. Your needs are also to be in an environment that is supportive of you and maybe of your family and even more so of your community. That's the mission. That's what we do at Walmart. It's not everyday low prices because we think that's a great slogan. It's that for many people, affording fresh food, affording, frankly, clothing, healthcare, it's hard, getting harder during these inflationary years. And so I think that's the core of where it starts from. And that hasn't changed since Sam Walton founded Walmart. There are 5,100 stores knowingly, right? This is a knowing choice. 4,000 of them were built in medically underserved areas, which means, again, economically underserved areas. That's a choice that you're making that we can make a difference in those communities. And so when I look at what I've been hopefully trying to do throughout my career, it is no matter where you are, in whatever community you're in, You should have access to the best care or the best food or be able to feel confident where you are that when you walk into a place, biases aren't the first thing that you're impacted with. You're impacted with, like you, our humanity allows us to do something good together. That's how I got to Walmart. Getting here, I'd say, has been learnings. I think I started out, I think, with being a doctor check that box, I'm going to be able to go out and give great care. Not so much. I ended up having to learn a lot about clinical trials and how new drugs and products are brought to market and who needs to be included in a clinical trial so you make sure it works for everyone. One of my proud moments, I remember when the NIH was trying to figure out high blood pressure in African Americans and they did not have enough funding. I was at Pfizer We funded All Hat, which for the old clinicians on this call, you will know it is the definitive study in that high blood pressure presents differently in different ethnic populations, a big deal in the guidelines. I trained as a cardiologist. Why? Number one cause of death for women and people of minority populations, knowing again, the more of us there are, the better that can be actually the first African-American female to become a cardiology fellow at Cornell. And that was for me just a great thing to know that I was part of this team, this future work, and learned clinical trials, then needed to understand insurance. How do people pay for it? Came up from the bottom through that and learned a lot about that. And with the expertise and experience, hopefully, of caring for people, understanding what research can do understanding payments have really been working on now with all of these different tool sets. How do I get it done? How do I make a difference? How do I get up every day and go, today was another good day? Might not have solved everything, but did I do everything that I could do? And that brought me to Walmart where to your point, they are very aligned. Are we doing everything we can do to improve the lives of the people in the communities we serve. It just makes it easy to then just do the work. I'm inspired just listening to you. I'm having a couple of thoughts as I hear your story. The first thought is, 
why don't we get every immigrant in the United States we possibly can? There's something about people who are willing to take a risk. You know, here you were barely in your teenage years and you said, I have to join my mom here because there's opportunity and your drive has led to great things and it's improved our country as well. So I, that's the first thought I have. And the second is, man, is she gritty? People might look at you. I think you're the immediate past president of the Society of Black Cardiologists. I may have gotten the name slightly wrong. Really yeah. prestigious role. Boy, is she lucky. And boy, there's nothing lucky about your trajectory. It's hard work. And I love what you said, taking risks. So thank you for being an inspiration. It's motivating me just listening to you. Anything you accomplish, there's just a large group that helps you accomplish this. And yeah. I think for me, there's been this early realization and probably just from the way I grew up to now that the more people you are around who are aligned and want things to be better, the easier it will be to do it, but it's also much more enriching. And so, yes, you fight to do something. Look, we just went through COVID-19 and immunizations in the communities that Walmart's in. A lot of hard work. But I will yeah. tell you, every day I came in, I'd hear, you know, hey, I went to the Indian Reservation in New Mexico, and I got them to agree to allow us to give immunizations. You're just like, yes. And you keep hearing people who are just like, we're going to get this done. And it's not that there are high barriers. It's how many of us are stepping one with each other to cross the barrier. And I've had an incredible group of mentors, supporters. I'm also not afraid to ask for help all day long right. of just, can we get it done? And that these aren't big, hard things to do. It's that it's hard to do by yourself. It's hard to do if you don't recognize that the person against me isn't an insurer. It's not a pharmaceutical company. It's not a health system. It's not a Walmart. We all need to do this because if it was easy, healthcare wouldn't cost $3.8 trillion a year in the US. This is work with terrible outcomes. Right. And I always remind myself of that because I think sometimes people are like, oh, you work in that industry. You work in a... No, we all work together. And one of the things that I do is I go back and forth in the industries to say, how can you say that those people, you know, what does those people mean? I've been in all of them, right? I sit on the board of the American Heart Association. It's us. These people are us. Cheryl, let's talk for a second about your vision for a transformed health system. I was part of a group of CEOs yesterday, most of whom were on the provider side of things. And I got asked a question, basically, is the way the world's shaping up right now, is there a big opening for big tech and big box retailers to essentially disrupt how healthcare is delivered? And I said, if you think it hasn't happened <laughs> already, you're, you're not paying attention. I don't think the answer is it's us versus them. It's figuring out how to create a hybrid environment. And I'd love for you to maybe share with our listeners your vision of what that looks like. Could you do that for us? That's great. And so I started out by saying we have 4,000 stores in medically underserved areas. And for people who don't know what an MUA is, it's a government designated area that 
says there are not enough primary care physicians or other healthcare services in these communities. And by the way, these MUAs have existed for multiple years. So we have a gap. We have people in communities who do not have enough access to healthcare. It's not that health systems aren't doing great jobs. It's not that we're not innovating enough. It's that there isn't enough access. At some points, we've actually even said there will be a shortage of clinicians. And we've said 20, 30,000 primary care physician shortage. We've talked about other specialties. That's our starting point. And I look at this in a hopefully a very data-driven manner. If we have communities where we don't have enough access, what do we do? Do we continue to do nothing or do we find solutions? One of the solutions is organizations in those communities, can they be a front door to some of the care that people need? And what does that look like? It looks like, how do we make sure people get immunizations? We learned during COVID, we went from pharmacists giving 25% of immunizations for flu to giving two out of three COVID vaccines in this country. Imagine if primary care physicians and some pediatricians didn't have to do that and they could care for more patients. We need that to occur. And so what we look at is how are we a front door? How are there things that we, with the types of teams we have, can we provide care in those communities? And then how do we partner so that people who do need to see a specialist, we're allowing them to do that? Because unless you enter the front door, you sometimes delay specialty care, be it for cancers, be it for a chronic condition like diabetes. There is a continuum of care that we are trying to be a part of so that we don't overburden a healthcare system that costs too much and may not have always the right access points. That's how you do this. We actually know this works. It's been studied in many different areas around the world. So again, from a pure data-driven perspective, that's what we're trying to do. I'd make one other comment. Healthcare, and I say this a lot, your good health is if we say it's 100% for you to be in good health, what makes up that 100%? 40% of it is made up of social determinants, fresh food, access to affordable health care. 30% of that is personal behaviors, which means someone told me, my doctor, that I had diabetes. Do I know what to do when I get home? Or someone said I had high blood pressure. Do I know how to manage that? That's 30% of care. So 40% social determinants, 30% personal behaviors. Only 20% of care is an interaction with a physician. 20%. I've just now made up 90%. And then there's 10%, right? Environmental genetic was still figuring out. If fresh food is really important, access to low cost medicines is really important, then that's 40%. Let Walmart do that. Let's do that all day long. I always say to people, we provide the freshest organic food at the lowest price in the country. I wanted to be the back end to every person in the country getting access to that. If that's all we did in healthcare, we'd lower cost by about $300 million. I'd take that and I'd ride that all the way through. But if we can help people with personal behaviors as well, where when they have diabetes, they can now afford their medicines because we last year launched 
drugs for insulin that is 70% cheaper? I'll take that on too. Can I get you an ambulatory blood pressure cuff that's the right size? Because my community health worker helped you fit that. You now know how to go home and measure that. I take that on too. That 70% doesn't usually occur in today's healthcare system. We leave people to do that on their own. That's a role that Walmart can play. When we get to the clinical pieces, we'll partner with everybody to give people good care because that's what we can do, right thing to do, but it's also measurable. Cheryl, as I'm listening to you, I can't help but think that your papa, your granddad, you're serving his memory in a really beautiful way. So let's do a couple more things with the time that we have. Not only are you a business person and a national and international leader and a clinician, you also are an author. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about creating books. And I think your family, maybe your immediate family has been an inspiration to you in that regard. And could you talk a little bit about that? And then I want to come back around to maybe get some advice for our listeners based on your experience and your rich life that you've lived up until now. So first, maybe a little bit about your role as an author, please. Well, use the word author lightly for all the true authors who may be listening on this call. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) One of the rich things that I just mentioned is the importance of healthy food and the importance of having access to healthy food. Many years ago, when I worked at an insurance company and also practicing cardiology, we tell people, you should improve your diet and you should be eating healthier. That's really hard to do unless you know what to do, particularly if you come from a Caribbean culture like I do. The foods that I normally eat does not include cottage cheese. They're just not things that, you know, I, I, grew I actually up have with. to tell you, I, I love West Indian food. So <laughs> it may not yes. be terribly good, but yeah, nothing like a curry goat or something like that. I Thank love you. it. Thank you. I, yeah, I think it's why you and I have bonded. I wanted to make sure that I think I told you, I think my grandfather had diabetes, but I'm from New York and there are many people who are have a Caribbean descent or many people who are frankly travel to receive a fun lifestyle in the Caribbean. And then I have uh, two sons. And so as they grew up, I kept thinking of, okay, give a lot to my work. Work takes up a lot of my time and I love doing it. Doesn't feel like work. But with my family, I also want them to see and do things with me that I enjoy doing with them. And we started out when my kids were were younger, for any big holiday, they would get to create the menu. And frankly, even as I went through working, even today, and my kids are in their 20s, people will email me and go, what did Cameron send for the menu for Thanksgiving? It just became a thing (laughs) that we would do. And everyone would know I would have to go home and create these menus of things that my kids loved. And as I started doing that, it just became how do I take things I love to eat and make it healthier? And literally started doing it as a family. And so just so you hear this, my husband's the photographer in my cookbooks. Great. I've got an oldest son who's actually a food taster because he's incredibly picky. And Cameron, my youngest, is my sous chef. And Cameron would work with me. We would volunteer for food kitchens where we worked. And Cameron would go with me to cook and literally would take over the kitchen. He'd like, 
yeah, mom, yeah, no, that's really not what these people are going to want to eat. I've got better sense than you. And was we started um, doing this. And we wrote our first cookbook in memory of my grandparents of just a Caribbean cookbook. And then as my kids got older and we started having their friends over who were surprised that they knew how to cook, they also used it to build relationships. I quickly yeah. realized that there was an opportunity to maybe do something and also did a cookbook for kids who are going off to college and everything from what do you need to buy to what are the simple meals you should know how to do. With my husband, again, getting all the credits for being the photographer for this. So became a family event. The four of us did every book. And my grandmother got to see the first cookbook, which was really special for my kids doing that. We've got this wonderful picture of her holding the cookbook. My niece was probably about 103 and my kids um, around her. So it, it was pretty awesome. No whiskey in any of the cookbooks for anyone um, listening. Our kids are in their 20s also, and a couple of them are really into food. And I think Mary Carol and I are the capital partners at this point. So we say when they're over, we say get bring, get whatever you want, and we, we help them as they make the dinners. Isn't it great having kids in their 20s? These young adults are awesome, aren't they? They are pretty inspirational yeah. for me. And I think, like I said, you've worked a lot, but I've always involved my kids in everything that I've ever done. And watching them kind of navigate, to your point, after George Floyd and during COVID and being able to, frankly, hear the thoughtfulness, it was humbling. It was a little bit painful because at times I couldn't see my kids because everyone was self-isolating. And just thinking to myself how important my family is to me. There's an, a saying, an old saying, you know, you can be replaced in all aspects of your life, except as a mother and a daughter. And it just really resonated. And I recently, in December, moved my mom in with me. Oh, and really? just my children coming home to see it, it matters. It, it means a lot. So Cheryl, can you give people who would like to make an impact like you have some advice? Because I, I believe some of our listeners are people who aspire to make a difference. Probably almost everyone who's listening wants to make a difference in a positive way. And you've lived your whole life like this. And so what would you tell them? What, what are the keys to, I don't think title is necessarily important to everybody, but that sense right. of impact of helping another human being in a sustainable way. What do you tell them? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that don't think you can't do it. I, I think people talk themselves out of making an impact because, well, I don't have this. Well, I don't know this person. You can make an impact in anything that you do. I would say the biggest learning I have is not thinking that you have to go do it alone. Build those teams. Just some humility in saying things you don't know and asking people with skill sets to be able to be part of your team in helping you. I've mentioned using my family for my cookbooks, but I probably do that in every aspect of my life. I don't know that I've known what to do at a pharmaceutical company or at an insurance company or at a retail health company. And for each of them, I know what the end should look like. And it just frankly just has to look better than how it is today. You don't even have to have a great plan. 
and then asking people along the way, how do I get it done? What can I do to do it? And it's not always a senior person. Early in my career, I trained at New York Hospital Cornell. I remember the security guard saying to me, youngster, which is what he would call all of us, you actually don't have to run out to get something to eat. If you ask us, we'll let them deliver it here. And then you can still stay on the floor and we'll help you with that. Just wouldn't write. And it stuck with me. And literally, I remember starting to ask everybody that I saw for help with things, even when I was an intern. I think that's what we forget. To your point, people want to do good. People want to help. They want to be part of something uh, meaningful. And if you just let them, they will help you. But then you've got to help them back too. You've got to listen to some of their ideas. You've got to definitely, if you say you're going to do something, try to do it. And by the way, if you fail, say, here's how I fail and here's why. You need that coalition of people around you. It is my biggest key for whatever success I've ever achieved. It's really recognizing that get people around you who want to do it with you and make sure that all of the skill sets come together to make that 100%. You know, sure, I, I really like that. And, um, you know, to paraphrase the great philosopher, Mr. Rogers, I think he said, there are a lot of helpers out there, look for the helpers. And I, I think they're all around us. And I think that's really beautiful advice that you you give. So you know that I'm obsessed with this idea of making good trouble, of taking on hard problems and maybe even poking the bear every once in a while in the interest of doing good. Can you share an instance where you've made good trouble and that you feel pretty good about it? Gosh, I'll I'll pick only one then. (laughs) (laughs) You could go on all day probably. I know you. I can pick on, I'll pick just one. When I was in medical school, one of the things that was really challenging was being able to afford medical school. It was hard. A single mom trying to figure out what we could do. I remember the, my dean at that time, and some of you will know him, David Rogers, who was actually initially at Robert Wood Johnson, went on to be the dean at, at Hopkins. And I went to him with, there has just got to be a way where I can figure out how to work. I can figure out what needs to happen so that students can be able to afford healthcare. It's really hard. You guys must know that. What are you doing about it? And he looked at me and he said, you've come into my office quite often. By the way, I don't think he meant that positively. Um, (laughs) And there's always something that you're looking to solve. Do you have a suggestion for doing this? And I said, yeah, we should have a scholarship. We should create a scholarship fund. We should set it up proactively. We should make sure that people understand what people are trying to do in healthcare and be careful what you ask for. And David Rogers then had me meet with a number of different people. I ended up, and if you guys remember internship, it's not like you have a lot of free time. Remember writing protocols to make sure that funding would occur. And we set up this program and I was incredibly proud of having done it, but with someone who made it a joy 
didn't make it feel like a chore, didn't make me feel like you've got to go find the money elsewhere, just made it kind of something I would do. Fast forward a number of years, and at Cornell, a number of years later, the person who ran that office, the financial aid office, called me and said, we want you to come back and talk a little bit about your time at Cornell. And she did not know this at the time. Her name was Joan Sanford. I went in and talked about it, but because of that experience, started my own scholarship at Cornell in 2000 and now pay for a student, minority underserved student, to have funding for medical school. And it all started with what you would call good trouble. I think David Rogers was just tired of me coming to his store, but someone listening <laughs> yeah. and someone saying, all right, let's go make this happen. And I try to do that. I try to show up for the things that I think are important. If it's something bad, someone along the way will tell me, you're on the wrong side of this, here's why. But if it's something good, I will stick with it. I will try to make it happen. And for myself, want to try to do my best. At the end of the day, every day, if I did my best at something, I'm good all day long. That for me isn't even good trouble. It's how we, if we all did that, we'd be rocking and rolling. Um, Cheryl, thank you. Visionary, leader, gritty, immigrant, physician, Amazing person, really proud to know you. And let's sit down and have some curry goat together one of these days soon, okay? I think we're going to do that. A healthy version, by the way. A healthy version, of course. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you joining. Thank you. I'm Mark Harrison, CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Thanks for joining us today as we work together to build a healthier future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, then rate and leave a review. Your feedback will help us bring you better episodes each week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.